0: Welcome to SCORE Podcast. In this podcast, we discuss the responsibility of sports for and within society. What impact should sport have on our world?
1: Can sport do more? Who's responsible? To address these questions, we focus on possible solutions and desired scenarios. We break our discussion down in four parts. First, we describe the current situation. Second, we draw the ideal future scenario. Third, we walk backwards, defining the key milestones. Then, we call for actions needed today. And we are your hosts today, Donata Taddia and... And Alexandra O oh, Sasha
0: Volkova. Today we got together to discuss the future of international federations' engagement with grassroots, and we invited Mike Niversnik uh, to do this exercise with us. Welcome, Mike, to Score Podcast.
2: Hello, hello from Munich.
1: Mike is an international senior sport management consultant. Mike switched over to the sports sector in 2011 after 10 years in corporate management consultancy ever since mike has been mainly working in strategic planning and commercial business development in various international sports federations mike paved the way for three and three basketball to become an olympic sport and reorganized volleyball's event assets for median partnerships currently mike is working on handball master plan 2028 and is a member of sports climbing tv and marketing commission Mike told us that
0: throughout all these years working in sports, he has been amazed how well sports governing bodies are exploiting their commercial rights for the elite sports in comparison to how little is invested into global grassroots projects. I'm quoting Mike here, but instead, I suggest we start right away talking to him. So let's move to the first part of our discussion um, and define what is happening now and
1: today. Mike, let's actually start by establishing a common ground. What are grassroots programmes and why should they be important for international sports federations?
2: Well, it's uh, complex and as uh, multidimensional like many other things in sport. My personal description of grassroots is literally everything that is not elite. And now, as we know from the Olympic history and from the history of many other sports, even the discussion about what is an elite competition or what is elite sports is rather complex. So I would break it down to grassroots sport for me is everything where people are doing sports and not getting paid for it.
0: And and can you explain how it's different from amateur or the concept of amateur sports then? What's the difference between grassroots and amateur?
2: Well, there is, as you probably know, back from the 70s or 80s, there was this big discussion like which, um, for instance, in tennis, but even in boxing, that uh, certain players or certain athletes had amateur status and then on the other hand were not allowed to participate in certain um, professional events which i personally never understood why this distinction was actually made anyways but from our perspective as of today and i would think that's probably the definition that most modern sports marketers and sports management people have in mind um elite sports elite competition is really where um yeah professional compensation for the players is involved where everything else so meaning grassroots is really Um, people practicing and um, participating in sport events but not getting paid for it. But this is again my personal um, definition and it's probably something that you would not find or maybe you would find it on Wikipedia, I didn't check actually.
1: Mike, and why then this uh, ecosystem of grassroots should be important for the International Sports Federations?
2: Well, the interesting thing is that over the last, uh, I would say, 20, 30 years, so um, let's say as of the 70s, 80s maybe, were really not only the American leagues as probably one of the first ones, but then also um, event organizers, of course, like FIFA, like UEFA, like the IOC, really um, commercially drove their assets to a whole different level. I would say this really started in the 70s maybe in the 80s and what happened is and in my opinion and from the today's view is that many of the sport marketers and of the um of the sports governing bodies um, of course realized that you can make a lot of money with the creation of your elite competitions through media rights marketing rights licensing you name it um, and this worked well. I mean, if you look at, at the income those organizations are making over the last decades, that's really impressing. And I feel that at the same time, because there was so much money to be made um, in a way, most international sports federations, at least in a way, forgot about the development of the grassroots because they did not see an immediate right. return on invest financially on one side and on the other side. And this is now a um, highly political point. And we might go into more details later on. But the second reason is that from an international federation's perspective, the grassroots sports, meaning the development aspect, um, per definition was not part of their responsibility, but was actually the responsibility either of a national federation of the respective sport, if not even more local, meaning some kind of regional federation. So they didn't, they didn't really feel responsible for a global development of their sport again not in every cases but i would say in the majority of the cases and this also really just changed maybe a little bit over the last five or ten years i would say
0: um i I just want to come back to what you said before uh can you explain by what you mean um by international sports federations are quite reluctant to invest in grassroots so we why is it important for them why they they should invest and why they are not investing if you you could give us more detail
2: yeah. Well, if you, if you benchmark it, literally what is happening in the private sector, I mean, if you see um, or if you just read what the big management consulting companies, for instance, the McKinsey's, the Boston Consulting Groups and so on, what they did over the last 20, 30, 40 years is there was always a trend of centralizing and decentralizing businesses. This happened in many industries. There were certain periods of time where it was very En vogue to centralize businesses, then after a couple, a couple of periods, there were there were other times where then decentralization was very much invoked. Today, the common let's say management sense is um, that it it depends. There is no there is no one fits all solution for different businesses for different industries um for instance in the private sector if we take the automotive industry where i used to work before it is in a way common sense now that of course you have a headquarter and of course you have centralized um, business operations um, for instance accounting for instance central product development on one side but then on the other side um The whole sales process in the automotive industry so where you buy your car for instance is a very much decentralized business so this is just a benchmark from the automotive industry now if you copy paste this into the sports world in my opinion the same thing should actually be happening so as international sports governing body should actually reflect and think okay what's the status what are my capacities what of my entire work that i need to do in order to grow my sport can i do centrally and should i do centrally and what can or should i outsource to my national federations or so on so this is the choice that they could actually make but what i'm trying to say is that in my opinion many international sports governing bodies were focusing on the elite part only as i said before purely because of commercial reasons and second because they always thought Um, no development is done by the national federations now you asked me sasha why do i think that this should potentially change or why should they have a motivation to change again if you think about the benchmark that i gave you of course if you centrally at least steer and define your development programs and your grassroots programs if you do this centrally well then of course you have a way higher chance to have a let's say um common and aligned development process along the entire world. If you leave this to every country or to every continent, well, then they can literally do whatever they want. And this is unfortunately what happened in many, many sports over the last years.
0: I I want to come back to what you said previously, um, that they have to grow the sports. So apologies, I'm repeating the same question like third time. Why is it important? What's happening now that the grassroots should be involved? Do we see the decline in participation rates, which affect uh, eventually the fund base, like um, the fund base going down and then less people participate, so less elite athletes uh, consequently? Or what's, what's the problem? I want to come back to this essence of why question.
2: Well, if you look at what's happening recently or over the last 10 to 15 years in the sports participation in general we have declining number of active sportsmanship anyways across all levels of society across all sports being at soccer being at football being it tennis all of them are facing declined participation they're all facing declined participation of youth they're all facing um, fewer membership in sports clubs so Literally, all those sports governing bodies have actually the same problem. So, this is in a nutshell, Sasha. This is actually the answer to your question that because of different, let's say, trends in society, being it people become more lazy, being it because people are much more attached to TV and social media, there are many, many reasons that we can discuss for hours. But the fact is that the numbers of people practicing sports grasp sports is declining globally. So literally, this is the one and most important reason for all international sports governing body that they need to invest in grassroots sports. If they want to make sure that their sport survives both on a grassroots level, but then ultimately also on the elite level, because of course, without grassroots, without development, you will not have elite sport as well.
1: I think this is quite a strong statement. Uh, Grassroots are essential for the survival of sports, uh, elite sports and international federations. And uh, this brings me to a how question. And I'm connecting to what you said before about this idea of centralization. Is there nowadays an international sports federation that is implementing this model that is successful in uh, investing in grassroots?
2: Uh, um, not very many um again if we if you do a little benchmarking and see how 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 let's say sports funding or development work is being done these days i would say you can you can technically separate or cluster all international sports governing bodies in five let's say development um, statuses so you have the really really small federations i don't know just making examples now um archery or bowling or trail running or you name it those federations especially also the ones that are not part of the olympic program they are so small and they have such limited budget that's that they are not really doing centralized global development efforts anyways simply because they don't have the money for it the second level a little bit more developed are probably the ones that at least they have a certain amount of budget and they are able to financially support their national federations or their continental federations again this is better than nothing unfortunately this is what probably most federations are doing until today and uh, sasha Donate, as you both know because you also worked in sports we know how i would say little success those purely sending money development efforts actually had um, because in many many cases then the receiving countries did not use the money the way it was actually um, earmarked for and then normally you don't have any, any any development success Yeah,
0: there is also a problem of accountability and reporting about the money exactly, spent. exactly exactly huh?
2: then the third level i would say again of the little bit advanced ones those are the ones that are maybe on top of sending money developing really active um, um, development programs for the grassroots mainly everything around of course coaching and refereeing which is understandable because, again, coaching and refereeing is probably the most important element of a sport on grassroot level anyways. So if you want to make sure that your sport is developing correctly in, in one country or the other, you need to make sure that you have the coaches and the referees. So this is the third level. Then the fourth level, I would say, are the ones that already have understood that they need to centrally develop Um, a development plan so meaning they are on top of maybe sending money on top of maybe um, providing coaches and referee support they are centrally um, spreading the word and centrally doing um, development work and there you have of course the prominent examples for instance of UEFA or of FIFA they have They are professional freelancers, they're professional development staff. They are actually traveling literally from one country to the other and really um, teaching and educating people on site. Um, but obviously, this is only to be done with a certain amount of money that you have in your in your budget. And then the fifth. And hold I hold say on, that, Mike, just a l- yes.
0: little clarifying question. When you say like, when, they 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 have coaching and refereeing programs. So do I understand the grassroots coaching and amateur coaching and referees programs?
2: Or and, uh, at the end, it doesn't really matter. At the end, you need to start with educating referees and coaches. If they then at the end educate and and, and work with grassroots in their country or with elite at the end doesn't matter at the beginning but ultimately of course you have a certain development curve both with coaches and with referees so when you start to educate them you would of course prepare them first to work with grassroots themselves because the rules and regulations are not as strict but then in the long run of course you can or you should develop um, those people then also to be able to for instance work with international competitions so it's also a, like a gradual growth that you have both with coaches and with also the referees so you need to de- to both but you start with grassroots
0: understood thanks
2: so and i was there yeah, so i was saying so the fifth level maybe if you want to use this model of 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 development of the grassroots are the federations that are really building i would say a holistic academy and um, now if, again, you take the example of uh, UEFA, they even call it Academy. Um, as I said, of course, you cannot compare the budgets of UEFA with a sport that is not even Olympic, but I would say those, um, those national governing or international governing bodies that are able to really build a holistic academy that would really include all elements of a professional development program, that's then probably the fifth, and in my opinion, the really, let's say, highest level of, of, of uh, development that you can offer to your stakeholders as an international sports governing body.
1: Mike, uh, you you made me think about uh, these layers and different capacities of international federations' focus and structure. I'm thinking, uh, how are they measuring their success? Is it uh, are there any uh, general indicators common across all these five layers of categories, or uh, are there any specific innovative indicators that have been developed?
2: Well, Donata, I think uh, this is pretty much. Uh a new ground. I mean, if you if you think about what I just explained, that in many cases you don't even have reached, a, uh, let's say, a ho- holistic level of global development anyways, well, this automatically explains you in a way that, of course, none of them or very little of them have defined any kind of measurement or KPI. Um, in my opinion, but again, I'm coming from the corporate world, uh, always literally working with KPIs, with dashboards and so on. I personally believe that, of course, you can... Maybe not easily, but you can definitely measure the return on investment and even the success of your development efforts. This can be KPIs like growing numbers of children playing your sport. This can be number of clubs in a certain territory. This can be number of sponsors, sponsorship income. So there's actually a whole variety of of numbers that you can collect that could um, give you an indication if your money that you spent on your development efforts was actually successful but i agreed or not that this is probably a pretty new field still and i'm not aware of many international sports governing bodies that are actually doing so i actually had a pretty interesting discussion about this topic a couple of weeks ago where i was also saying well you know what technically if you really mean it um, very serious in your development efforts you could even make the money that you give to your national federations dependent on their own development efforts and this is also something that's that's hardly ever ever happening i mean as you know i have worked with basketball with volleyball with many others to my knowledge until today this is not happening um, so they are still giving money um, as i said in addition maybe also some other kind of support but they are hardly ever really asking for hard Feedback or hard KPIs that would justify what they actually spent the money with. And also, there are no consequences. So, if you give $500,000 to some country, And you hear nothing back, you maybe don't get any KPI, maybe no project. Well, they will still keep those 500,000 and they will probably um, receive the same amount next year because there's no follow up and no consequence. And this is, by the way, let me just continue here. And this is also coming back to what Sasha asked before. What is the advantage or why should international sports governing body invest in grassroots and why should they do it centrally? Well, again, because if you don't have one central hub, really take taking care of it, well, then the money goes everywhere and you will never see it again.
0: You you actually summarized the, the, the first part well for us uh, doing our job here, Mike, thanks. Uh, and I think we underst- we understood, we got the idea of what's going on today, right, Donata?
1: Yes, I think so. I think it is time to jump to the second part of our conversation, our desired future. Mike! what future have you taken us to where are we
2: well we are in the year and again i haven't aligned this proposal with the ioc but we are now in the year 2054 and by then we got rid of all national olympic committees and of all international sports governing bodies because we realized that we actually don't need them anymore now of course this is a little bit accelerated but what i'm coming down to is and, and again, we don't need to define a certain period. I mean, it's gonna, what I'm gonna walk you through now in my mind, this is of course something that's not happening in 10 years, maybe not in 20 years. So maybe the year 2050 is not that, that far away. So let's come back to what I said before with the benchmarking from, from, from the automotive industry. The In the ideal scenario, all the international sports governing bodies underwent the same professional, let's say, procedure of strategic planning and really making sure where are their strengths and where are the weaknesses when it comes to the development of their sport and then maybe you will have some sports that say oh you know what in a way we do feel actually powerful enough and knowledgeable enough to do the entire grassroots development centrally from whatever lausanne geneva you name it by the way, you see first examples of federations going a little bit in that direction. If you think about FIBA, International Basketball Federation, as you probably know, they still have their continental confederations, they call it. But from a legal perspective, they are more or less under one um, one umbrella with FIBA. Also with the same, by the way, you probably know, with the same look and feel um, of their events. Um, so this is all a very already very much centralized at least on a commercial level but then okay you will also have other sports governing bodies that say oh you know what we are so weak in our headquarter we don't feel for whatever reason we don't feel like developing grassroots centrally we will maybe continue um, writing certain uh, books and maybe certain educational material but we will continue to leave Um, the development of the grassroots sports to our continental confederations or to our national federations and then maybe and i'm not making this up maybe you will have other sports that will actually say well you know what it would actually be super efficient if we really get rid of all those boundaries and borders of national federations and continentals let's just be the governing bodies for our athletes directly and then we come also to a let's say quote that i also always like to mention is by then sports would really move from being a b2b business to a b2c business So what do I mean when I say this? B2B business is what's happening today. An international federation is serving the national federation. The national federation then is serving the regional federation. The regional federation is then serving the local club and so on. So you have this cascade of businesses serving businesses. Whereas B2C business, again, as you know it from many other businesses, is an international sports governing body, would be directly be in touch and in contact with the athlete. And there I can give you some examples as well. You know the 3 and 3 basketball project probably. This launched back in 2012. This was a first attempt to say, okay, the entire 3 and 3 competition landscape, so meaning all events, all organizers, all results, all players are on one central platform so we don't need a national basketball federation anymore we don't need a national club anymore if they want to be part of this project organize three and three events perfect but the end fiba has now i don't know the the numbers up to date but is in the three on three planet which is this uh, central um, And platform, I think FIBA has access to 120,000 basketball players. So this is pure B2C business. In sports climbing, where I'm in the in the in the in the sports commission now as well, in the TV and marketing commission, this is also an idea that we are that we are playing back and forth because we say, should we not have the opportunity or give climbers, sports climbers, the opportunity to become direct member of the IFSC? with all the benefits that you can could then give them. So what I'm trying to say in the year 2050, in my ideal future, at least all those boards governing bodies made this exercise to contemplate about it and not just leave their governance and leave their way of management and leave their way of grassroots development just the way it is because it has been done like this forever.
0: Sorry, just to clarify about this third model, actually, like a step back. So, you drew for us three potential models, um, not necessarily call them, calling them ideal. One is uh, when it's totally centralized, another one uh, w- d- with the same umbrella structure when there is international federation, then confeder- um, uh, confederation level, regional confederations, then national federations, etc. And the third model which is governing body for ad- athletes b to c model so this is kind of ideal model we are talking about mm. so when you say that just just a little question bef- before you continue when you say that athletes are members like uh like it is happening in if um, SC, w- you mean all the athletes not only athletes performing in elite competition in the world level, you mean in all the athletes even performing on a local, regional, city level?
2: In the ideal world, yes. Okay, thanks. Because other question, why shouldn't it? And just to clarify, Sasha, what I those examples I gave you before, none of those models is the ideal model. Because again, think about the benchmark that I gave you. In automotive or the money that Boston Consulting McKinsey is doing, the money they're making is by every 10, 15 years contemplating What is for my asset, for my industry, or in in our case, for my sport, what is the elite and the perfect um, governance model? So I'm not saying that one is better than the other, but what I'm saying is that right now they're all doing the same thing. They all have an international federation, then they have a national one, a regional one, blah, 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 blah. What I'm saying is that it's worthwhile looking and contemplating if this is really the best way to go. Um, because, for instance, maybe for one sport or for some sports, and this is part of the solution in my personal opinion, part of the solution is indeed a mixed model. So you will have certain, again, let's again take the comparison of, of, of automotive from before. Also in sports, I believe there are certain aspects of the operations that should be central. For instance, of course, the organization of the world championships, for instance. This is something that will always be and should always be centralized and should always be made or, or developed from the headquarters.
0: Or Olympic qualifiers as well, yeah? For
2: instance. Then there are other um, other parts of the operations where I think, okay, and let's, let's stick with the development program. I do believe that a development effort and development program should be steered managed and governed centrally but i do believe that the implementation should happen locally so i'm not a super big fan of those let's say um um, um, yeah professionals or consultants travel from one country to the other and explain them how to do things i do believe that the local development works best with the local resources that you have of course you fly in external um, capacities once in a while but it should still be happening locally so in a nutshell sasha what i tried to say is um in 2050 i'm not sure what is the ideal model i'm just saying i do believe that having more b2c is helping in any case and we might come back to that why i'm thinking this later on but i'm not saying that central or decentral is the one is better than the other i'm just saying it depends on the sport That's the one thing I'm saying. And the other is I don't think that this procedure is being done by many of the international uh, sports governing bodies because they just replicate, as I said before, how the structure of sports and the structure of development has always been. Since Coubertin and since the games in Athens, we have this model of, again, IOC, National Olympic Committees, IFs, NFs and so on.
1: Yes, definitely, Mikey. Uh, There is a lot of repetition, right? Uh, There is perhaps lack of creativity. So in 2050, you envision a future where there is more experimentation, playing with these models, governance models. And my question is, do you also see new stakeholders joining this uh, new governance system? Do you see any new actor arising and taking a key role in defining this future?
2: Um, personally, Donata, I would hope so. Um, we come back again what we just discussed because also the inclusion of the, of the of the private sector in the operations of a sports governing body is is happening quite rarely. So if you could, I mean, you could you could question, for instance, why an international federation is actually organizing events themselves. Um, so if you question it really critically, you you could really argue is a sports governing body per se really the perfect event agency in my opinion they are not and maybe they also shouldn't be um but this comes back to in a way chicken and egg discussion okay so what is then the core responsibility of a sports governing body and this on the other way is coming back to our vision of 2050. that's where i said from a sports perspective I'm not really sure if we really need the sports governing bodies in the way they are today. Um, we might need them for certain yeah, um, organizational reasons. So for, again, um, being sure that we have the qualifiers for the Olympics and so on. But other than this, at the end, ultimately, uh, you might really challenge um, that question to which extent you You still need those international federations and what their core purpose at the end then should actually be. So to come back to to your question, Donat, I would, yeah, I would by 2050, I would hope for way more um, corporate and private sector um, involvement. Again, we see first trends there. If you take, of course, the example now of CVC um, investing in a volleyball world or if, Or if you look at um, other private equities investing in major soccer clubs, so you already see private sector money flowing into sports and, of course, mainly affecting, again, the elite part of sports. By 2050, I also hope that we will find this engagement and investment of external money also into the grassroots part. Because, and maybe this is also for our discussion still yet to come, I also do believe that there's a lot of money to be made in the grassroots sport and not just in the elite sport.
0: I am um, I just want to trip further a little bit here. So talking about this, um, um, other stakeholders involvement, I just had an idea. What do you think if the model was like to adopt one grassroots engagement of development agency like WADA is for anti-doping matters in the olympic world so the same could be like completely different centralized body so which is independent from international federations but they're subject to comply with this world development agency kind of thing
2: This is, for instance, one very good example, or you can have other examples. What I also never understood is why many national federations don't see the benefit of cooperating with their neighbors. Um, Especially if you look at, at territories like Europe, where the territories are so small anyways. I never understood why then countries like, and again, I'm just making examples again, Austria, Switzerland, Slovenia, so on, why they are not in different sports, but also across sports working way, way more together in every terms of the sport, in organizing their own leagues. So we come back to a whole different discussion. Why does a little country like Austria or Switzerland really think that it's of any global value to have their own national league in football, for instance, my personal opinion there is no real value just the fact that they are stubborn and think that they need a national league because they are their own na- nation but we we know that there are tendencies of of combining certain smaller national leagues from a sporting perspective but what i'm saying is also that in the development um in the development area i never understood why why smaller countries or neighboring countries are not making common efforts, why they are not combining their coaching programs, why they are not organizing maybe certain kids camps together. Um, so why do they all need to facilitate and 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 create their resources by themselves and not share them? Um, like, again, take the corporate world as a benchmark like you would have in the corporate world in many many um, aspects a company like apple or a company like tesla they don't think in national borders they think as a national company they maybe have still their their local regional sales agents but that's about it everything else is managed centrally and they make sure that they can um, add value and exchange knowledge across any kind of national borders. They don't exist for companies like that.
1: Saying on, on, on this reasoning, um, uh, I'm thinking now about the examples of the European Union. that have euro regions and they invest a lot of regional cooperation. So I'm thinking that the uh, sports sector has a lot to learn also from these other experiences, in, institutional experiences. And I'm also thinking could these new uh, regional entities be the one uh, thinking centrally the development programs because i'm not so sure uh, that the international layer the international level is the rightful um, owner of the development programs leaving up to the national uh, actors to implement what if is the other way around what do you think uh, if it's a national actor the one more entitled to define the development program because they leave their experience on site and the international layer uh, stakeholder should be the one supporting the implementation.
2: Yeah, Donata, this is what I meant before with what I, what, what I mean with a really very distinct and very clear definition of what the capabilities are and, and that they really probably differ from, from one sport to the other. To answer your question, in a way, yes and no so for instance of course when you think about development of course the central guidance on the rules and regulation of a sport they always need to come from the very very top so you cannot have your national federations now all of a sudden create um, development programs and at the end after a couple of years you actually see that they used for the same sport all of a sudden they use different um laws of the game so there are certain key elements and this is what i mean with those are the key elements that will always be the main purpose of a sports governing bodies and rules and regulations is definitely one of them so this will always even by 2015 be this needs to be centrally steered and needs to be centrally managed but then i agree Donata, that then the implementation or the development of certain grassroots initiatives so um whatever programs for kids after school or certain programs for um, disabilities, or certain um, programs for obese people, you name it. Those different um, maybe now national initiatives, that's exactly what you also said, they don't necessarily need to be national. Those can be maybe private uh, sector companies, private entities that create their own, um, let's say development plans, and maybe even finance them themselves. There are examples that those kind of things are actually working. Um, even financially independently from from an international sports governing body. And then, yeah, maybe this is the solution. I always, in that regard, um, Donata, always, I'm always a big fan of the word endorsement. So I always believe that a national or international sports governing body should, at the end, work together with as many parties as possible. And they should be coming from the private sector, they should be coming from the governmental sector, they should be coming from the educational sector. And I know that for many old school presidents, secretary generals, this endorsement, this inclusion is a mindset that they just have never appreciated. And this is slowly, slowly changing and shifting. Um, There are examples um, of different sports where I do believe that the management is already quite open to corporations in different ways. Um, Let's face it, it has always been a a typical white man problem that those um, certain presidents, certain senior staff just always wanted to protect their sport against any kind of influence from the outside. And this is why they for many decades never allowed corporations, again, with private sector or with other corporational partners.
0: Uh, before we move to the next part, I just want to clarify one thing uh, from from what you said. You are talking about shifting from B2B to B2C B mindset. Yes. But then now you're saying that um, the on the on the international level there should be key key elements should be worked on like rules and regulations uh, guidelines and other things that are going down to the local level and that's where it should be implemented exactly. so isn't it a bit controversial to be to c mindset when the international federation should work directly <laughs> with the client or oh, i'm misunderstanding something here
2: no that's um, exactly what I said but this is also exactly what I meant there are certain certain key elements that always in no matter b2b b2c businesses that always need to be at the core and at the center and rules and regulations are one of them because as I said before otherwise you end up with with different rules for the same game um but many many other things and I would say if you think about the entire let's say um value chain or or let's say operational chain that a sports is is facing i would say 90 percent can be decentralized and also made let's say to a b2c business at the end but 10 percent core 10 percent, and as i said things like anti-doping things like rules regulation those 10 percent will always stay within the headquarters and will always be centrally and again if we uh, let's make up our mind again with the benchmarking what i have said before this is exactly what's happening in the private sector as well you have those certain elements as i said the development of a new apple product or of a new tesla model this will always be done central you will not leave your sales agent in switzerland and leave him all of a sudden with the task to to create a new tesla that's not going to happen this will always remain at the center of the corporation Whereas then other elements are then definitely up to a B2C business.
0: All right. I think it's a bit more clear for me, but let me summarize before we move um, to the next part. So you are talking about the mixed model that could be different and should be different for every sport, where certain processes are clearly centralized and clearly um, defined on the international level. Lots of other operations should be left on the national level, but to thinking about accountability and quite a strict control, certain types of operations should shift to B2C mindset when international federations are working directly with outlets, even if we talk about uh, ba- ba- basic and just participation level uh, sport. And uh, in the UR, as I understand, what is needed is just to act so this question needs to be raised and the action should start. And with this, talking about actions and thinking about actions, I suggest we move to the next part of our conversation. Or oh, do you have anything to add, Donate, actually?
1: Let's walk back.
0: Let's start walk backwards. Deal. So, Mike, what are important milestones in this pathway? And I remind you that we are walking back from the future to the present. It's not an easy exercise, but let's try. Um,
2: well, ultimately, I mean, at the end, we talk about the typical change management process process. Um, and as we know, change always hurts, and uh, change always uh, costs resources, and change is always painful. Um, so again, those are those are ideas that we just discussed that not going to happen from one presidential election to the other. So if we, as we said before, if we keep the year twenty fifty or twenty forty in in mind. Um, the way or the, the the operational work to actually make up your mind and and move in that direction is not that much of a hard work if you ultimately this would be the outcome of a typical strategic planning process that you do with your sports governing body like the IOC is doing like UEFA is doing like FIFA is doing normally you do your long-term strategies and they include then the development and the grassroots part normally you do those strategic plans for a five to ten year period and the process to get to those kinds of plans can be as quick as let's say a three four intense uh, week workshop or like in the case of European handball for instance one of my mandates I just had over the last period which was actually a process of 18 months but um, this is still the first step that you that you would need to do. You would need to get the engagement of the senior um, staff, of the president, of the secretary general, of the of the board of the sports organization to be really up for a strategic planning process, and including of this strategic planning process, a clear review of the governance model that we have right now. Um, and then if the if the oh by the way let me not forget in this um, in this process It's always super important to get the external input. So, of course, we will never come up with a new governance model and a new way of development. If only the president, the secretary general and the board of administration sits together, you need to have the external input, of course. And with external input, I mean critical external input. So meaning you need someone from the media, from the media partners, from your sponsorship partners, from your players, from some grassroots representatives. So the bigger the party, the better. I always say it's again, a lot more work to get all those opinions together, but at the end, the outcome will be way, way better. So this, I would say is the first milestone to get this, um, agreement at the end signed by everyone like a written documentation we by the year of 2050 want to make sure that we have found our new governance model that best serves our grassroots players we want to have this and this targets and goals and those can be kpis Um, and we also want to move our sport from a more or from a let's say old-fashioned b2b to a b2c business wherever possible this will be the first, first step. And I think this can be, this alignment can be done within two years maximum.
1: Mike, to summarize, external input, engagement of senior staff, so a fundamental uh, shift in the mindset. What else to achieve this agreement? What else do we need? What resource do we need?
2: Well, as I tried to say, it's... um, if, I mean, if we compare or if we look at, at the at the sports industry, how is it working these days? It is still very hard um, to find ways to get external input really be heard by management stuff. And again, this uh, is actually applicable for all the major international sports governing bodies. In my experience over the last 10 years, uh, Donata, the best way to open up minds is by having private sector businesses in the room so again if we take some some prominent examples um, fiba signed a very prominent uh, deal with infront and dazone already back in 2012 i believe and great things happened afterwards because with infront and dazone you had two very capable strong commercial partners who just know how businesses are run in the private sector Again, we talked about this before. If you take a recent example of the uh, um, FIFIB, where you now have with CVC, a strong American venture capital company in it, of course, with also their own expertise in how to run commercial businesses. Um, European Handball, another client of mine, they also signed a deal with um, Infront and Dazone, I think in 2016. Um, So having those external views ideally from commercial partners is always the best step to open eyes and ears for for new sorts so for everyone listening out there who is maybe working for some international sports governing bodies and is wondering how change in his or her organization can start and he or she does not have the feeling that it's happening internally and it by the way never happens internally getting partners from the commercial external private sector is probably the best route to go.
1: I'm thinking now about civil society organization, uh, how they fit in, in, into this equation, because often grassroots overlaps with uh, social programs, uh, social impact programs. So where these NGOs, the experts, let's say, on specific matters uh, come in uh, this picture?
2: I think they will actually come in more and more in the future, because if you see what happened just in the last four or five years, um, everything around, of course, the, let's say, ecological topic of sustainability, but also the um, uh, CSR topic of corporate social responsibility is these days almost mandatory part in every strategy that you read from any kind of company or sports governing body that is working in sports and if we take the prominent example from before if we look at those companies as i said cvc in front zone just to take those three examples those are companies that are of course coming from a strong commercial background only but even they by now have their own units dealing with csr topics dealing with sustainability topics and so on and since all those companies and again this can replicate to many many more since these topics are not their core expertise they will engage themselves more and more ngos and more and more other partners that are experts on development programs and then kind of the circle closest to what i said before at the end the word endorsement So meaning the cooperation of many, many stakeholders is the key to success. So you will not create your successful grassroots program only with your commercial partner. Of course not. But it's definitely helping if you have your commercial partner and your development NGO partner, if you have them together on one table, just as an example.
0: Mike, I want to challenge one of, your ideas here and to ask a question here so uh you say strategic plan so to develop a strategic plan uh, which is not short terms but a real strategy like 30 years from now recently we've seen by many sports covenant bodies they are b- presenting even 10 years ago world archery and um, uh, olympic agenda 2020 we've seen many examples of such strategies that have been presented, that have been worked on, uh, that included in the working and development process. They've included lots of outside, um, I wouldn't use the word outsiders, but external stakeholders. And uh, um, where are they going now? So is creating a strategic plan and publishing it, is it efficient tool what should be what could be the other milestone from just creating and signing under the strategic plan this is one question and another question uh they they are related a little bit you say involving private partners and you gave example of a 5 uh fiba and other things when this partners signed up do they did they claim any um Plans to engage grassroots? Did they show any KPIs about involve, um, about their development programs or something?
2: To your first question, Sasha, um, excellent comment and um, excellent, um, yeah, um, putting into words the current situation. I would say ninety nine point nine percent of all strategic plan in sports are only documents. Um, and no implementation so I know my friends from McKinsey will now not like me if I say that but they have this typical McKinsey approach they have excellent presentations and they have uh, a great command in in publishing it and but then the implementation normally they leave to someone else now in sports it's even worse because in sports the implementation is normally done by no one so you're perfectly right that as of today And I'm aware of many, many strategic plans and sports because I also worked on many of them. The strong willingness to actually implement, so meaning to not just put down the goals, but to really make a proper um, project management following up. So where you clearly define who is working on what kind of matter, with which timeline, which priority, which budget, which outcome, and so on and so on and so on. This is literally work for two, three people, full-time staff and literally no one of the let's say bigger again except maybe the ioc fifa and uefa no one of the other sports governing bodies is actually working on the implementation of their strategy the way they actually should so to answer your question the difference between just signing and then other other results is simply the execution and that is really really missing to your second question um and again, I think I have a quite good view into this industry. So companies, as we said before, but let's make the picture wider. It's not just the the, uh, the zone and in front and so on. It's, of course, the IMGs and Sports 5 and you name them. Even they have now understood that you can easily monetize um Grassroots sports that you can easily monetize even sustainability efforts that you can easily monetize CSR efforts now, of course, again, they are doing this with a different View on things because at the end ultimately those are still private sector businesses but all of them and then ultimately also the sports governing bodies understood that with the investment in grassroots in sustainability in csr there's also money to be made so it's not just that they do it for the sake of it because those are trendy topics and you need to do it but all of them understood that you can actually monetize it very very well and this is again nothing that is just very special for the sports industry literally all the bigger companies out there um, understood by now that there's also money to be made with sustainable business. And there is definitely money to be made in B2C rather than B2B businesses.
1: I like this uh, monetization. (laughs) It's a very difficult word. Conversation. There is a clear benefit to invest on grassroots. This is what you're saying, right? There is definitely. There is definitely. How can then uh, we shift and we i say we as sports professional how can we shift this mindset from this solidarity approach that is you know still embedded with ideas of charity of yeah. giving because it's good to give back to society into a more structured uh, approach that benefits not only the, the international federations but all key stakeholders through uh, capacity development programs empowerment to implement their own projects and so on and so forth
2: yeah i think donata in order also to keep our our conversation really on the point i think if the um, if the audience kind of can take away two arguments in that regard i think that's already helpful the first one is Um, to really and we said that before to really see investment in grassroots into the future of the sport because without grassroots development you will ultimately also not have any elite sport because you need coaches to educate uh, young children you need referees even in young age to tell young people how certain games are actually played so if you don't invest into that well then ultimately you will have no one less left to play in the champions league or in the nfl Um, because you need those players and they need to be educated in some way and um, okay there are ways or different ways to do it maybe the american system of having let's say all the sports development happening in schools that's maybe one way to do it but even there you see uh, the united states are heavily investing already in 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 high school sport because they know if they don't invest in high school sport they will not have proper college sport and if they're not having proper college sport they will not have an nfl or an nba it's that easy so that's the one argument and the second takeaway is because by exploiting grassroots there is also money to be made as i said and this is a very uh very easy argument um um, because if you look at the pure numbers of grassroots players that you have in all those sports, and at the end, if you just say through whatever initiative, you get just one dollar, one Swiss franc from all those players, well, then in most sports, you talk about two, if not even three-digit millions that you get. And um, there are already prominent examples where where this um, B2C um, approach, meaning directly, taking money or selling items to your, um, grassroots players is actually working.
0: I still want to come back to the same question and I'm a bit annoying today, no, with this coming back to the same question, milestones. So strategic plan and make sure it's implemented. Uh, what, what else could you, um, name as a success factor for, to enable the change?
2: well if we continue the example that that we started before so let's say after two or three years we really have a strategic plan that would then include or impl- or, or yeah include a proper development plan as well then i would say whatever is written down in this development plan of course needs to be um uh, yeah needs to be executed on a smaller scale first so i would not roll out um globally um, especially not if we really talk about a significant change, then I would go step by step and maybe make changes just with some very prominent countries initially. And this is also a time period that I would allow to do for two or three years. So, so to make it very concrete, remember what we said before about those five Um, development phases literally that you maybe have for an international sport so let's say one international sports governing body now says oh you know what okay let's move from just sending money to our members let's move to um, centrally decide uh, what we're gonna actually teach to our member countries and let's also send certified coaches to travel from one country to the other and actually execute those development efforts so let's say this is the goal that is written down in this development plan of course i would then not start to implement this in all whatever 180 or 220 countries at the same time because you need to see and try and error if this is really working for your respective sport so maybe just take five six seven countries maybe it's even good to start with some big countries in your sport or maybe some smaller ones so that you really have kind of the feedback on let's say a very professional organizational level on a very primitive um, organizational level. And this is something where I also believe you should take your time. So this, let's say, testing phase, I believe should go at least over a season, if not even two. And then because you will not see uh, any of the results quicker than this. Um, You will not see increased numbers, again, of referees or of children. You will not see this within a year. So this testing period definitely needs to go over two years. If you have more time, the better. So, and then if we continue our, our example and we have a proper analysis that would then say us, okay, this um, new development, grassroots development initiative is working for our sport, then a global rollout can actually happen. And this, again, if you think about it, to roll this out then to 180 countries, and let's say you're not a federation with huge amounts of money where you can send um, several dozens of experts in parallel, this is a process that will also take years. So we are probably not that far away if we say the final status will be reached by 2050.
0: Okay, just to quickly summarize. So if we go backwards from 2050, 2054, so we have a phase final phase before total rollout of testing it on small federations, big federations. So step before that of developing the guidelines and implementation strategies on the, and the step before is developing a strategic plan that is embraced by everyone. And that is, um, that involves a lot of external co- collaborators HH. to make it uh, to make it innovative and really the, 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 the one that
1: would enable the change. Donata, do you have to add something? And the previous step work on the change of mindset, which I believe this is uh, the first uh, thing Uh, that we can work on. Let's not
0: answer for Mike, because I think it brings us to the last part of our conversation, which is a call for action. So Mike, tell us what should be done already today and by whom to enable this change?
2: Now, I could make a very quick and dirty answer, and say you should send every president and every secretary general, secretary general who has never worked outside of sports, you should send all of them to do an internship in the private sector. That would already help help a lot. Um, but no, funny things aside, and what Donata actually just said before is also a very important thing. So let me just quickly also connect those those two points. This change of mindset is of course something that's not only happening initially again if we think about a change management process that might go over 20 years if not longer um, hell we all don't know um, how the world entirely will actually be developing or changing in 20 years anyways so this constant review of the current status of a sports governing body needs to be done constantly this is also why and this is also coming back to what sasha said this is why doing those strategic plans but also implementing them and also review and correct them every other day is so important because no long-term strategy if you even if you do it for three or five years and maybe that's already the max you can do these days anyways if you want to look further into the future it's really getting tricky so you need to be sure um donata that this change of mindset and this raising awareness of new topics this needs to be a constant process you just need to be sure in your organization that you have someone in the organization that is actually challenging you enough, and at least on a yearly basis to really make sure that you actually that you are actually doing this.
0: Uh, uh, sorry, just um, to to clarify a little bit. So, who should start acting already today? Who is that uh, key point to key enabler?
2: So, in the private sector, those would be the shareholders. Very. Easy answer and probably very um, clever answer because in that way you already have a very wide public and a wide publicity of shareholders that will judge the success of the management board of a stock traded company. And um, now you will probably realize that again, since I take this benchmark how and this is what i said before how the sports governance needs to rethink if the way they operate is the perfect thing so should they not also and again I'm, I'm i'm accelerating now but since we talk about moving sports into a b2c business shouldn't then be the c meaning the clients the consumers the grassroots should those not be the directed shareholders of the sports governing bodies now the president's The recent ones, they will hate this idea, of course, because they want to be elected by their 180 national federation members. But just imagine that the sports governing body is 100% reliant on the election and on the results and on the wishes of the grassroots or of everyone that is doing that sport, how massively this would actually change the democracy in a sport. And now we talk about really about 2050.
1: And let's say on 2050, and I suggest we wrap up, we start wrapping up. Mikey gave us a lot of uh, insights and an interesting and desired future in 2050 with uh, less bureaucratization, uh, less structure. More centralization, balance with a uh, uh, decentralized program. Mike has, suggest, has suggested that uh, sports sector, International Federation can explore B2C uh, initiatives, uh, can explore uh, what endorsement is, can be more creative and experiment more with their uh, stakeholders outside of their uh, ecosystem, like private sector, um, uh, civil society organizations, athletes directing leging, engaging with athletes. There are some things that uh, I really liked from his uh, conversa- from this conversation. The idea that this centralization also entails more democratization, give more space directly to uh, local actors, athletes, uh, uh, private sector, but also uh, associations, civil society organizations essential a change of mindset of the leadership but also of the sports professionals that have to embrace a new narrative in understanding the true potential and opportunity based in grassroots programs and there is also a lot of work uh, to be done in understanding the peculiarities of the sport. Each sport, Mike said, has uh, its own capabilities, its own features, and there may not be one-size-fits-all solution, but sports, international federations, have to be more aware of their strength and opportunities uh, they lay ahead. Sasha, am I missing anything? Uh,
0: No, I don't think you miss anything, but uh, I know that our guest is Mike today, but I start thinking... Because I like this topic very much and I'm, I'm moved by this cause as well of increasing the participation in sports and uh, uh, working with grassroots more. And I'm actually thinking that we could have missed something. I just had an idea of what is needed as well as the first step, it's also to raise awareness and to understand where we are, to work with numbers and um, do some statistics about the participation rates, about what's going on in the world. We uh, we, we we don't have these uh, numbers, maybe we have numbers of amount of obese people, of amount of uh, infrastructure existing, but I think collecting this data could be an interesting step to start with to understand where we are in comparison where we were and actually where it leads us to with some projections um, but you summarized it well donata do you do you have anything to add to this mike
2: Sasha, just a very prominent example because you just mentioned this if you ask the majority of international sports governing bodies how many people are playing their sports the majority will not have the answer and this is i think is is the perfect prominent example why why the status is the way we describe them today why the international sports governing bodies know exactly how much money they can make with world championships and so on but why the majority of them don't know how many people are actually playing handball volleyball football baseball you name it the reason being because they never had this strategic centralized approach to take care about grassroots. They always left it to their national federations. And then with good luck, you can summarize the numbers they have and come up with uh, something. So the example you gave was like working on those numbers. Yes, that's a great effort, but unfortunately at least the federations will not be of great help.
1: I have the feeling that Mike is not ready to wrap up yet. So Mike, I think we're gonna invite you again to dig down on this last point you mentioned because we think it's very relevant. Sasha, over to you. Thank you very much, Mike, for being here with us today. It was an amazing conversation.
0: Thank you.
2: Thank you very much, Donata. Thank you very much, Sasha. Great talking to you. And always keep in mind, let's make sport more democratic and let's endorse it more and let's make it B2C. All the best from Munich. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks again. And this brings us to the end of our show. Thank you for listening. This show is produced by Score, sport think tank based in Lausanne. Check out our website, scoresport.com and our LinkedIn page to find more information about this episode and what we do.
1: All our episodes are available on all main podcast platforms. Please rate, comment and share. This will help us a great deal. Stay connected and remember, nobody can score alone.